welcome to Downsizing Your Home and Life radio show, where it's all about finding ways to a clear path to stress-free downsizing in order for you to live your best life. Each week, we will discuss where to begin, how to select where to live, the best methods to sort and monetize your stuff, as well as the proper steps to valuing and listing your home in order for you to fast forward and start living your new life. Now, here is your host, Ann Nori, the downsizing coach, an experienced, award-winning realtor, auctioneer, and personal property appraiser, bringing you much-needed information to help you navigate the steps of becoming financially whole as you successfully downsize your home and life. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our new episode of the Downsizing Coach and Downsizing Your Home and Life Radio. Wonderful to have Lindsay Sarowitz here with us on regarding Estate Planning 101. Thank you for being here, Lindsay. Thank you for having me. Lindsay is an incredible associate at Handler and Levine LLC. They're located in Washington, D.C., um, she's a member of the Maryland Bar Association, Virginia, as well as District of Columbia, and practices regularly in all three jurisdictions. As part of her practice, she um, holds very uh, wonderful seminars for federal government employees through the National Institute of Transition Planning, and she's also an adjunct professor at Montgomery College. Congratulations to you. That's uh, wonderful accolades. And she also teaches wills and estates as well as probate in Maryland. Thank you so much, Lindsay, for being here with us today. Thank you again for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. We're going to jump in. You're like a wealth of knowledge and information. I think it's been over seven months we've been trying to get this show for us to put a time together for your busy schedule to be able to be a guest with us today. And I would love for you to start us off and share with us, what is estate planning? Um, yeah, I guess that's the most, the best place to start, the most basic question that I can answer. Um, so estate planning is basically planning for the time you pass, right? Uh, at a time that you are alive and well. Um, right. That's kind of how a lot of people think about it, but it's also planning for potential incapacity. So basically uh, setting up who you want to be in charge of your assets, your medical care, uh, everything like that, not just, you know, in the short term, but potentially in the long term as well. So if you become incapacitated, or then eventually if you pass away, or when you pass away, I guess, is a better way of putting it. So I'd say a typical estate plan, and we'll go into all of this today, um, would include a power of attorney for financial and legal matters, right. a health care directive for medical issues, um, a last will and testament. So that's where you say what you want to happen to your stuff at your death. Uh, that's a very basic way of putting it. Um, potentially a revocable living trust. Um, and then always uh, making sure that the beneficiary designations for all of your beneficiary designated assets, like retirement, life insurance, are all set up, um, as well as guidance with jointly with regard to jointly owned assets. So I feel like a full, a comprehensive estate plan needs to have um, 
needs to have an element of all of those. For example, if your beneficiary designations don't need to be updated, that's right. okay, but it should be a conversation, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So um, I want to see why is estate planning important for myself and for our listeners? Sure. So a lot of people think that estate planning is only for wealthy people, only for people with children. You know, I've heard it all, why people haven't done their planning or why they think they don't need an estate plan. Um, but I'm here to tell you that everyone does. So even if you are not wealthy, whatever that term means to you, right? It's a very subjective term. Um, even if you have no property to dispose of at all, um, everyone needs at the very least from the time they turn 18 until the time they pass away, a power of attorney and a medical directive. Um, without these documents- Lindsay that, is, Lindsay, that is so critically important. I'm sorry, I'm just gonna interject here for our listeners that those two elements are so easy to obtain and so easy for them to put into place and to have multiple copies of these documents um, and, and to have their attorney help them or yourself help them prepare these important documents that they can keep um, for years to come. Absolutely. Yeah. Without them, you know, the power of attorney for, for finances, absolutely a financial institution is not going to take someone's word for it, you know, that, that they're the right person, that they're who you wanted to handle your assets. And similarly, you know, even doctors, they don't have to listen to your loved one if you become incapacitated, which we'll dive into a little deeper, but you know, doctors don't have to, and financial institutions won't listen to your people if you don't have these documents. So, you know, a lot of factors impact what documents are needed and um, and what's appropriate for you. So there's very few things that I can say, everybody needs this or everybody needs that or everyone can expect this or that. Um, so when I say that everyone needs at least the power of attorney and healthcare directive, you know, that's not something that, uh, that I say with regard to a lot of things. Um, so, you know, a lot of factors are gonna impact what plan is appropriate for the individual, right? Besides wealth, right? Wealth is one factor for sure. Um, but others might be, you know, if you care for a minor or a disabled child. Um, if you are concerned about incapacity planning, so planning for your own incapacity, uh, caring for your surviving spouse, transferring assets in accordance with what you want, not what your state says it's going to be. Um, and then sometimes people want to avoid probate, depending on a lot of factors. Um, and, you know, if charitable giving is something you're interested in. So again, there's a lot of different factors that should be discussed with your attorney, but step one <laughs> would be the power of attorney and healthcare director. Yeah, sure. and I really love the fact that you bring to our attention the fact that this is important, not only for us as parents, but also for our children that are over 18. And I thought that was a very interesting point that you brought up during our conversation that um, it's important because unfortunately things happen unexpectedly, accidents happen, things that um, none of us are cognizant or, or anticipate, but it's very important to have these things in place, one for the financial and one for the health 
um, because it really empowers you at a time of need and spares you the mental anguish, the, the anxiety, as well as the financial aspect of trying to gain control of a situation that is you know, emotionally difficult. Very well said, I agree. So let's mm-hmm. talk about um, what is the power of attorney and what do I, why do I need one even if I'm married? Good question. So the power of attorney, first off, it's one of the documents that I refer to as a lifetime document. So the power of attorney, the healthcare directive is the other, which we'll talk about shortly. But um, the main reason or the only reason we refer to this as a lifetime document is because it's good and it's valid while you are alive, but it dies with you. So just at the outset, I want to you know, mention that when I get a call from someone saying, hey, my mom died last month, I've still been paying her bills and managing her assets as her power of attorney. You know, I got to (laughs) say, stop right there. You know, you might still have the ability, you might be the right person under her will or her trust or what have you, but your power of attorney hat is no longer the hat that you're going to wear after someone passes away. Um, So the power of attorney document essentially allows you to name someone, whoever you want, right, to act for you with regard to your legal and financial matters. So a lot of times people think that if they're married, like you mentioned, they don't need a power of attorney. Um, They think that just because they're married, their spouse can do anything for them that they would have wanted them to do. my guess is with your background, you already know that this isn't true, right? Like for example, if if spouses are selling their home, right? They're both on the deed. Well, they both sign the new deed to transfer ownership to the new owners, right? If one is traveling or one is not there uh, at the time that deed is signed, you don't just say, okay, wife, you can sign both names or you can sign for your husband. No, either both of them are there, or in that scenario I just mentioned, you know, the wife needs to have a power of attorney for the husband. So, um, you know, it does come as a surprise to a lot of people that, yes, your spouse will be able to access joint assets. Uh, They certainly will not be able to deal with individual assets. And remember, retirement is always in one spouse's name, right? So I have clients that fill out our questionnaire and put their 401k as a joint joint asset and that's sweet, but it's not legally, uh, you know, the way it is. So, (laughs) right. Um, So, and then they are very surprised that the uh, joint owner, the spouse can't sell the property on their own, can't mortgage it um, and things like that without them. So, and I mean, it takes time if any of these preparations are not in place and someone experiences any of these I mean just the panic that I hear in clients voices when they call and they and they do not have a document in place when someone is either incapacitated or or something more tragic has happened it's 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 an overwhelming emotional toll and sometimes they're not able to make the best decision that they would have during a time when they were not under duress. So it's really advisable for couples and for families to really sit down and talk and to have that dialogue with amongst themselves and then with their professional counsel 
in order to be prepared and to have that peace of mind. If anything was to happen, that you know it's going to be okay. And and I think that's really the objective that I have is to for the purpose of our podcast and our radio show is to get the information out and to make it so seamless so that individuals are prepared not only for themselves but their parents, their spouse, their children. So if anything unforeseeable does happen, they are prepared. Yes, definitely. And what you said was so true. You know, people usually don't make the best decisions when they're under a ton of stress and that tight timeline. So why not do it now, you know, Mm -hmm. before you need it? Um, That's absolutely kind of the purpose of all these documents, right? Absolutely. And uh, that leads us into the question, what will happen then if I do not have a power of attorney and I become incapacitated? Sure. So if you do become incapacitated and don't have this document, right, the power of attorney for legal and financial matters, what will have to happen for someone to access your bank accounts and use your money to pay your bills and so on and so forth is someone is going to have to go to court. Now, when I say the word someone, keep in mind, who's that someone going to be, right? Is it going to be the someone that you would have wanted? Or is it going to be, you know, do you have three adult children and one of them you really would not, you know, you love them, but you wouldn't want them in charge of your money, but they happen to be, you know, kind of the one that the other kids don't really fight back against, for example, I'm just making that up, but then that child might be the one that goes to court and and asks for what's called a guardianship or in certain jurisdictions, it's called a conservatorship for someone over the age of 18, but we'll just refer to it as a guardianship. So that someone goes to court, asks the judge to appoint them as guardian. Now, keeping in mind that typically that person would hire an attorney to um, prepare the petition for guardianship. Now, as we're talking, if you see dollar signs, when I say the word attorney, I will not be insulted, right? We know that attorneys charge for our time and our time typically doesn't come cheap. So that person's going to hire an attorney, uh, go in front of a judge, ask to become the guardian. Another attorney will be appointed for the allegedly incapacitated person, kind of as their mouthpiece. And the judge will typically send an investigator out to determine whether that person does in fact need help you know, is mom actually incapacitated and needs this child to help her? Or is mom totally lucid, but wanting to give her whole estate away to charity? And so that child is trying to jump in and stop that from happening, right? So um, so that is typically a very expensive and time-consuming process, even if the whole family's in agreement. That would be called an uncontested guardianship. Now, if the family is fighting or disagreeing in any way, all bets are off, you know, for a contested guardianship, it'll be even more expensive and more time consuming. So that's why to avoid all this. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Finances, you're absolutely right, is one aspect of it. But when you enter the court of law, you're working on the court schedule. And unfortunately, um, you know, when things have to get go in front of a judge, it can take time when it's important in a critical moment to make some decisions and for things to happen. 
um, you want to be proactive in this and you want to avoid all of these bad, bad what ifs and make sure that your ducks right. are lined up to your wanting, you know, have the individuals that you would like to be in charge of your finances, in charge of the paperwork. Maybe you want to delegate different responsibilities to different individuals. I've seen a ton of times where parents are like, you know, my middle child is far better at the health aspect of making decisions. And we want the older child to perhaps be responsible for our financial component of our, you know, of our state. So you have that opportunity to make those decisions and to think about and to have the conversation. Perhaps you want to have an earlier conversation with your adult children, you know, in advance and prepare them and let them know what your wishes are. Either case, it allows you the opportunity to be prepared to think about what the best decisions are for you and your family and really protect your kids from being torn into this situation where they have to take time off from work or fly in to be in the local city. I mean, it gets complicated and expensive. Definitely, yes, well said. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this leads us to our next question. I've heard there are different types of financial powers of attorneys. Is this true? Yes. So there's a lot of different types of powers of attorney um, based on where you live and whether you want your agent to have very broad powers, that would be called a general power of attorney, or whether you want some limitations, that's called a limited power of attorney. That kind of makes sense. But as far as the general power of attorney, I'd say that's, that's typically the type of power of attorney we're talking about, right? Like, saying someone to take control if necessary at the time that that's needed. Um, and I do want to say that calling it a general power of attorney is really aspirational, to be honest. Um, you can never have a one-page power of attorney document, for example, that says, I want my agent to be able to do everything I could do, sign, notarize, done, right? You actually have to list out every single power that you want your agent to have. So it's really important to think about all those things that you probably wouldn't think about, right? So I think of this as like a toolbox for my clients, right? So we put all these tools in the toolbox and if their agent doesn't need one of the tools, it's just a little extra ink on a piece of paper, right? But if the opposite happens, and one of those tools isn't in the toolbox. Again, we go back to going to court and getting some sort of order allowing them to, to act with regard to that asset that wasn't included. So, you know, it's really important um, to keep in mind what you want your agent to be able to do, right. as well as whether anyone else relies on you. Right. So, for example, if you help your mom pay her rent every month, right? Or maybe you have a child that's technically adult, an adult but hasn't fully launched into the world and you're still paying her, um, their uh, health insurance or something like that. If you become incapacitated, unless it's written there that your agent can use your money from, for someone else, they can't. So you need to put that in there. Right. And I mean, really, I think with the with COVID and with everything else going on, it's really given us a sense of reality as to how things can sometimes unexpectedly go wrong 
go wrong because of health issues and prolonged periods of time that people might be ill or in ICU or have complications, right? Where if your finances are not delegated, no one's going to be able to pay your mortgage. So things can quickly change. Like if you come out of an illness unexpectedly, if you don't have these things in place, like your credit could be affected. You know, there's going to be other complications. You've created anxiety for your family members. So again, preparedness, having the conversation, all work in your benefit the way that you want it to be done and spelled out such. So our client, our, our, a lot of individuals would ask, who should I name as my agent? Yes, that's a really important thing to consider, right? Not just, oh, I need this document, but one of the reasons I think that people maybe put off doing these documents is because they're not sure who their name or they're uncomfortable giving someone so much power, right? Okay. So um, if you're married, for instance, a logical first choice might be hopefully your spouse, right? Um, for those people, the real question is who to name as the backup. Maybe they have one adult child and that's a logical backup, right? Because you always want to have a primary as well as at least one backup. I love it when clients have a whole bunch, right? Um, but I'd say that issues come up a lot when someone isn't married, doesn't have adult children, or doesn't have much confidence in their adult children, right? So when helping clients like that decide who to name, we typically advise that they look to two characteristics. One is trust, right? You're giving someone a lot of access and control, the power to change your estate plan, the power to access your accounts, the power to sell your real estate if necessary, the power to update beneficiary designations, right? We need to trust that person we're naming. And the second is common sense. And that's where a lot of people's lists go down, right? There are a lot of people they trust and they're like, oh no, does that person have common sense? But what I mean by common sense is you don't need to name an attorney or a CPA or a financial advisor, right? You can name someone who doesn't have any sort of specialized knowledge. They just need to have the common sense to know, okay, I don't really know how to do that task. I don't need to hire someone, right? They don't need to figure out how to file your tax return. They can send the documents to the CPA, but they have to have that click in their mind that says, oh, wait, I need help with that, right? And they can use your money to assist them as is appropriate. Um, but again, they don't need that specialized knowledge. That's, that's a great point. Common sense, right? That's what we hope. So that leads us to a great point. What if someone has two children? Should they name both children? I get that question a lot. Um, now, you can name multiple agents to act together. You absolutely can. But I always make sure to have a pretty, pretty deep conversation with my clients about that, if that's what they're thinking. Um, a few things to remember, you know, think about how those two adult children, for instance, get along today. And keep in mind that, like you said earlier, you know, this is going to be a time of enormous stress. Um, it's, for lack of a better word, a burden, right, to have to take care of parents. I mean, it's true. Um, 
And, uh, you know, people aren't typically their best selves when they're under that stress. So um, also think about what their work styles are. If you have one child that gets all the bills paid early and the other one's constantly begging for forgiveness on late fees, right? Putting those two together to act together might just be setting them up for disagreement. Um, and don't just think about short term because it's possible we see it that someone's incapacitated for years, right? So we wanna keep in mind that if you name two people to act together, they potentially may need to act together for many years. Right. And, and Lindsay, you brought up a great point. I mean, and a consideration for everyone to make the document you're preparing today, let's say somebody's in their sixties and they're preparing this document. This document for very well could live for 20, 25 years, right? So you want to have the foresight to kind of think ahead of, or someone might think I'm healthy today. But when you're thinking about preparing this document, not only do you want to think about, you know, where you are today, where you're going to be in five years, 10 years, and 20 years as you prepare this document. And um, to have that foresight and to really write down what your wishes are. And I think I hear, I get a lot of phone calls and I hear a lot of stories from families where they say, I wish I knew what my parent wanted. And the problem is, is that they might have some of these documents in place, but they were not spelled out or they did not have a conversation earlier on with their children about what they might like to see happen in certain cases of these scenarios. So it's important, again, to think about what, you know, how they want these documents prepared, but also have that conversation and prepare the loved ones that you're entrusting to be your advocate to do the things that you want them to do for you. Absolutely. And that just brings up one, one thing that I, you know, always tell my clients, which is, yes, what you said is absolutely true. So some people will do their documents today and not update them. Okay. Right. So that just happens. Some people think of this as a set it and forget it type of thing. I urge people not to think of it like that. Right. So I tell clients to look at their documents every two to three years, make sure they still make sense to them. And right. then sit down with me every five years or so for like a checkup, right? And um, because you know what changes happen in your life. Right. I know what changes happen in the law. And unless we sit down together, we don't really see the other side of it. Um, but it's also important to keep in mind that if you set up, a, you know, in your scenario that you just laid out, the 60 year old setting up their estate plan, you know, there is the potential that they may become incapacitated between now and five years from now when they're going to do an update. So then, like you said, it could last them 20 years of incapacity, um, which would be pretty tragic anyway. Um, but certainly making sure you name the right people for the long term, just in case, is really essential. And that's why speaking to the right professional who's going to be able to guide you in that is is priceless, really. It really is priceless. Um, and that really leads us again into the conversation at, uh, with the healthcare directive. Let's, um, you know, what is that exactly? If you can define a healthcare directive for our listeners, that would be phenomenal. Absolutely. So um, 
first I want to say that this document comes in a lot of different names, right? So depending on where you live, there's different names. Uh, some places it's called an advanced healthcare directive. Sometimes it's called a living will uh, or a medical directive or a power of attorney for healthcare. There's plenty of names for it. Um, but this document, whatever it's called, uh, needs to do a few essential things. And please note, I've seen them where they don't do all of these things. Um, and that's kind of a disservice to your family. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. So first you need to name who you want to act for you to take control and make your medical decisions uh, if you're unable to do so yourself. So that's number one. I've seen healthcare directives very rarely, but I've seen it where they stopped there. They didn't fill out the rest of the state form, right? They named someone to act for them, but gave absolutely no guidance, kind of like you were saying just before, as to what they wanted to happen. So that's pretty, pretty terrible, right? Naming your child, but not saying what you want. So they need to say who you want to be in charge, as well as what your specific wishes are. Um, if you're in a certain condition, you can also say if you want to give anyone else access, access but not control, right, uh, to your medical records, to speak to your doctors, you know, that's called HIPAA authority, um, as well as if you want to be an organ donor, you know, all sorts of things we can add in there. But those are some essential things that you need to put in there. Mm -hmm. Um, those are all critically important. And I always, again, another element that I always, always remind everyone, as they're getting these documents prepared, have your attorneys create multiple original copies for you. And the reason is, is if you're traveling, I always ask people to have, you know, copies or if necessary, if you have two homes, people have Florida homes or they might have more than one property, they can have the original on site because I've seen institutions say that they're not going to take a copy of a document and, and insist on seeing an original sometimes. So it's important to have the right documents in the right places and to have access to these and to distribute these copies to the individuals um, so that it actually happened to a friend of mine her husband had an unexpected stroke. He knew where the documents are. She was in the hospital. While he was in the hospital, his father also became ill. And her, her husband was the one responsible for her, for his father. So oh. she did not know where those legal documents were. So she literally had to leave his bedside to go home and to dig through where she thought these documents were. It could have been at the house or she didn't know if it was in his car, in his office. So it's important to document and unfortunately, unforeseen tragic things happen in multiples that people don't think about. But I think we're here to tell you, we hear so many endless stories and that's why being prepared on different levels will protect you, your family and your loved ones. So that well, that brings up a good point. Oh, sorry. So I was just going to say that you know, I, I was just going to say when I talk to my clients, you know, I I always make sure that they I provide them with multiple copies and tell them that um, 
the healthcare directive specifically must, and I mean must, be given copies because uh, the, the doctors, uh, you know, will take that. So um, it must be given to everyone listed in the document. And I also advise them to give copies to their primary care physician. In fact, I recently saw on my, you know, they all have the, um, the patient portals these right. days. Right. And I recently was on my doctor's patient portal and I saw a button, upload your documents. You're right. And so that would be perfect. Mm -hmm. And so for your friend, you know, if the doctor already had the father-in-law's documents there, she wouldn't have had to rush around. But who, who would know that unless someone told you, right? It's like so unfathomable that she went through that. It's, it's, so, it's, it's yeah. tragic and up for everyone involved when something goes wrong, I can, I'm here to tell you, <laughs> unfortunately it's emotional. It's, um, it's just a toll on everyone, but, uh, it really takes us into, again, if you're married, do I need these documents? And I think we kind of covered it, but again, we want to drive this point home that even if you're married, <laughs> right, Lindsay, right. <laughs> yeah, so yes, I mean, so listen, I always, uh, when I give seminars, when I talk to clients, there's always somebody that says, well, I was able to act for my mother. I was able to act for my spouse. I'm not saying that that's not true, right? So banks, forget it. They will not listen to you <laughs> if you don't have the document. But with healthcare, um, you know, there is such a thing as a verbal healthcare directive. And we actually saw this, if you remember the Terry Schiavo case years ago. Mm -hmm. So um, doctors were listening to her husband for years, but then as soon as another credible person in her life, it was her parents came forward and said, no, that's not what she wanted. The doctors threw their hands up and they said, you guys fight it out in court. And that was a battle. That was a real litigation. And I think, don't quote me on this, but I think they actually withdrew life-sustaining procedures and then put her back on life support before eventually taking her off. So like what an awful situation for her, for her entire family, because again, verbal directives are valid. Some doctors may say, okay, you're the spouse will listen to you, but they're impossible to prove. And who knows? Maybe the doctor just got sued last year because they listened to the wrong person. You think that doc doctor's going to do that again? I don't, right? They'll require documentation from there on out. So it's very important to have it in writing. Right. Um, you're absolutely right. And, and again, back to the medical directive. Um, I had a question for you in regards to what does the healthcare agent do? Yeah, so a lot of people, most people, <laughs> I would say, think of this as end of life, right? Do I want life-sustaining procedures given or do I want them withdrawn? Half the time, <laughs> when I ask clients, you know, in a consult, I'll say, if you're in a persistent vegetative state, do you want life-sustaining procedures given or withdrawn? Half the time, they'll interrupt me in the middle of my sentence and they'll say, pull the plug, right? That's like the common term for it but that's not all your agent's going to have to do. Again, we don't have a crystal ball, right? This document may never come into play. Maybe you'll pass away peacefully in your sleep at 100 years old. 
but maybe not. So, um, so this person is not just going to make those decisions. They're also going to make day-to-day -day decisions and they're going to have to be your healthcare advocate. You're going to want to name someone who has the um, ability to, you know, not just listen to the doctors. If something doesn't make sense, if they think that you're not getting the proper care, you know, they need to have that uh, backbone to say, no, move my mother to another facility or give my mother another doctor. That is a great point, but they need that legal document in order to be able to do a lot of these things. And you bring such an incredible, important point that this happens all the time. The right, you know, you're traveling and some you have an accident. So you're in a, this small little town hospital and you need major help for, you know, and you want to go to the regional hospital, right? In order to do a lot of these things and to make them happen quickly, somebody needs to have legal authority to make those things happen for you efficiently, cost-effectively, and quickly. So that's an incredibly important point, Lindsay, that you bring up. Now, how is, um, what else does a directive say? You know, what is a DNR? Um, you know, can you talk to us a little bit about those points? Absolutely. Um, so um, one great thing about medical directives is you can really mold them to your desires, right? So we always talk to our clients about what their wishes are. And, um, you know, outside of what the, you know, state form, so because many states have a form directive, but they don't ask the same questions, you know, obviously a human with years of experience would. So we ask clients what's important to them. So we can often say, um, you know, uh, if you want uh, to receive medication to ease your pain, even if it hastens the moment of your death, right? I know that's in my document. Um, so uh, we'll often also say if someone has family, um, that they, maybe they are out of town, you know, maybe they live far away or maybe they travel sometimes. Most people, you know, absent COVID, uh, it's not unusual to have family traveling at the time of an accident. So oftentimes, even if someone wants, you know, to be let go, if they're in a certain condition, uh, will say that they would like to be kept alive for a period not to exceed three days or five days, whatever it may be, um, so, so that their family, their immediate family can come say goodbye, right? Because you don't want to, if you have a child living in, I don't know, Israel, right? They can't just hop on a plane like the person from New York can to come down and see you. Um, so you might want to extend that because most likely, right? This is a conversation we have with our clients, but most likely you don't want to be let go when that child has finally arrived at the hospital, you know, been through all that to get there, and then you're let go when they're on their way up in the elevator, right? So that's an example of something we might do. Um, and, you know, we also might say, and this is very helpful for a lot of people, and I know I mentioned it briefly before, but if you want anyone else consulted, or anyone else to have HIPAA authority or ability to talk to your doctors. Because a lot of times we'll have clients, again, you don't need someone with 
specialized knowledge, right? You don't have to go searching for a doctor or a nurse that'll serve for you. Uh, but if you have, you know, your adult child listed, and then maybe your sibling happens to be a doctor or happens to have a medical background. So if that agent, your child in this example, is saying, and so-and-so, this is what the doctor said, and she's like, that doesn't make any sense, you know, do you want her, this game of telephone to continue? Or do you want your sister who is in the medical field to be able to call the doctor, see your records, be of assistance to your child in making those decisions? Okay. So that's one thing that a lot of people do want. Mm -hmm. Incredible, um, just yeah. so much, so many connect the dot versions <laughs> and possibilities that it's amazing. It really is, Lindsay, to hear um you demonstrate and illustrate for us different potential ways of thinking about you know areas that a lot of us may not have considered so this is very very helpful information and i think it really leads us to the most important element that everyone's familiar with but i think you have a lot of words of wisdom to talk to us about wills what is a will you know um, what are the elements of a will and so forth and what happens if sure i did realize <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. i did realize i didn't get to your follow-up question that i i, I apologize i realized i heard it i'm so sorry so um no that was my fault so you asked me what whether uh you know what a dnr is so i just want to touch on that before oh, yes. we move on because that that Very was a good thing that you brought up because because a lot of people get confused when I'm talking about the medical directive and think I'm talking about a DNR. So a DNR is a do not resuscitate order. It's done with your doctor, not with your lawyer. And basically what it says is, if I'm found in need of resuscitation, I don't want the EMTs to help me. I want them to let me go, right? So people typically would only have that if maybe they're older or maybe they've been ill for a long time. Right. I know if I'm in an accident, I want them to do anything they can do to bring me back. Right. Um, but basically, unless you have a DNR and note that it has to be in a place where the EMTs see it, there's no such thing as a verbal DNR. Um, so unless you have one, basically the way that these two documents work together or don't would be um, without a DNR, the EMTs would save your life if they can, bring you to a hospital, and once you are stable, that's when the healthcare directive would come into play. And then also in the healthcare directive that we do, typically we will say that your agent has the ability to sign a DNR for you. So that's where that whole thing comes together because if you're incapacitated, you've been brought back a bunch and your agent knows you wouldn't want that anymore. Well, you can't sign the DNR because you're incapacitated. So that's kind of how that works. Does that make sense? It does. So can you clarify? So in that directive, you cannot specifically state, even though it's not the instrument that is used that you do not want a DNR? Is, and it only can be placed in the in the document between the medical provider and the patient? Well, so you don't have it, 
you said that you do not want a DNR. So if, do not if somebody did not want a DNR, you're saying that they cannot put it in their medical directive. You just indicated that they can put, give that permission for the um, agent to make that decision. But can they also still state in the medical directive that they, they do not want a DNR? So, so you do not have a DNR unless you have, like, it's not something that you would say, um, I do not want one, uh, do not resuscitate order. It's like, you don't have one unless you take that step to okay. do a DNR with your doctor. So um, when I said that you, in a typical medical directive, you would allow your agent to sign a DNR for right. you if something were to happen. If you don't want your agent to be able to sign a DNR, you would simply remove that um, power from there. Okay. So that's kind of how that works. Yeah. Great. So that, um, leads us into the wills and how right. does yes. the will yes. and, and uh, the elements of the will and, and members of the will and so forth. Benefit sure. So yeah, that was, like I said, that was my fault that I skipped over that question, but, um, so the will is another very important um, estate planning document. And I think when people think about estate planning, quite honestly, this is what they're thinking about, right? They're typically not thinking about the lifetime documents that are equally as important. And hopefully that's been clear, um, but they're thinking about what happens when I pass away. Um, so your will is a document that would say exactly that you would appoint who your personal representative or executor would be. And those terms are interchangeable. Mm -hmm. um, and again, common sense and trust, right? Those are those two characteristics for any fiduciary. Um, and you're gonna state in that document how you want your assets to be distributed at your death. Mm -hmm. um, you can also, if you have minor children, this would also be the document where you name guardians for your minor children. Note that I've seen a lot that that is one of the sticking points between spouses and a reason that people choose not to choose, right? They decide not to do their documents because they can't, them and their spouse can't decide on one person. So please don't do that if anyone's listening, right? Um, but in this document as well, you would do, um, I don't know if you've heard the term testamentary trust, but a testamentary trust is a trust that springs into existence at your death. So it's not a trust that's created today, unlike a revocable living trust, which we can talk about in a couple minutes if there's time, but it's a document that you put in your will or your revocable living trust that springs to existence at your death if certain conditions are met. So the I, there's a lot of different ones you can do. You can do marital trust for a spouse, parental trust for a parent, so on and so forth. But the one that we do, I'd say the most often is trust for children. So if you have a minor child, it's important to know that they can inherit. They cannot control money. They can inherit from you outright. So without certain planning, um, bad, <laughs> difficult things are going to happen. So, and then also remember that 
people may have adult, technically adult children that for one reason or another should not inherit, right? So minors cannot inherit. Certain adults should not inherit. And that might be because they are an adult in the eyes of the law, but you as their parent know that they are not ready to handle potentially millions of dollars, right? Um, or maybe they have a drug or alcohol issue or maybe other special needs where leaving them money can really literally hurt them. Um, so what we do there is we create a special type of testamentary trust. So in the, like a typical minor's trust that we might do, we might say, um, you know, if the kids are pretty young, so we don't really know them yet, I'm sure they're the best five-year-old <laughs> that's ever walked the earth, but you know, who knows what they'll be when they grow up. Um, so we might do like 35 or 40 year trust terms. And we might say, you know, the trustee, so that's the person who's in charge of the money for that child can use money at any time for that child's health, education, maintenance, and support. And then the document itself will say when the child can get money to do whatever they want with it. So we might say 5% in age 22, 10% in age 25, 25% in age 30, and the remainder at age 35. We also give that trustee, the person who's seeing what's going on in your kids' lives, how they're doing after you're gone, a lot of discretion. So they can give larger distribution sooner for a worthy objective, like down payment on a home, uh, acquiring a business, things like that. Or on the other side, they can withhold distributions if they see something that worries them, like drug or alcohol use, uh, creditor issues, a divorce is in the, you know, pending, things like that. Um, so it's really important to remember that one, who are your beneficiaries, right? Who do you want to inherit and how? And then two, just doing this document isn't enough. You actually have to make sure you designate the trust as the beneficiary on your beneficiary designated assets. Right. So Amazing. Um, that's a lot of content right there. <laughs> but you know, uh, we're gonna we're gonna flip the page, and that's the great scenario of being prepared. And we're gonna talk about the ugly that, unfortunately, as an appraiser, I get called in way too many times. What bad things happen if you don't have a will? Mm -hmm. So, if you don't have a will, that's called dying intestate. Mm -hmm. um, just a little little phrase, little Jeopardy phrase. <laughs> um, but. Um, so if you die intestate or without will, basically, instead of you saying who's going to be guardian of your minor children, how your children will inherit. So, uh, you know, your child might have special needs and things like that. So you create that trust or whatever. Um, and who's going to be the personal representative of your, your estate. That's all going to be determined by state law. So all of your kids will be treated equally, even if they shouldn't. Um, Stepkids will be completely excluded, even if you've been in their life since they were babies. Um, and um, also the intestacy laws with regard to distribution of your assets are often not what the client actually wants. So I 
a lot of times we'll have people attend my seminars that think, well, I don't need a will because I want my spouse to get everything and that's what's going to happen. Well, they're wrong. At least in Maryland, if you die without a will and you have a spouse and children, your estate will be split between them, not 50-50, but um, in some proportion. So the vast majority of people, in my experience, don't want that. They want the spouse to get everything and then the kids to get everything at the spouse's death. So that's kind of, you know, a lot of stuff will be, or everything really will be out of your control and just left up to the, to the state laws. Right. And, and if it, you know, and if those bad things happen, right, and, and someone does not have a will in place, explain to us what probate is. Oh, sure. So, um, well, that brings up a good point. So having a will or not having a will um, does not create probate. So um, a will is simply a set of instructions of what happens in the probate process. Um, so unless you do something to avoid probate, um, there will be a probate regardless of whether there's a will. So probate is at its simplest uh, definition, I'd say, or the simplest one I could come up with. Um, it's the court supervised process that identifies what probate assets, I'll define that in a second, the decedent owned at death and oversees distribution of those assets either according to will or the loss of the intestacy, what we just talked about. So in that definition, uh, you know, we need to know what probate assets are. So I know that you know, you know, when you own real estate or accounts or anything joint with rights of survivorship or tenants by the entireties, which is joint with rights of survivorship among spouses, um, as soon as the first joint tenant dies, it passes automatically to the survivor. So that is not a probate asset. Probate assets are assets titled in your name alone with no joint with rights of survivorship ownership and with no beneficiary designation. So the 401k that you have designated your spouse on, not going to go through probate, um, for example. So probate assets go through probate, non-probate assets don't. Excellent, excellent clarification. Thank you. Um, sure. So it sounds like a lot of work, right? Probate <laughs> has a lot of steps. It's a lot of work for the um, administrator of that of, of the case, how is it avoidable? And what steps can people take to navigate this ahead of time? Yeah, so probate is avoidable, whether or not it makes sense in a certain scenario to avoid it depends on a lot of different factors. So I will say uh, some ways that probate can be avoided um, would be owning property joint with rights of survivorship, like I just said. But for anyone listening, please don't rush out and add your child to your real estate or your accounts. Like I very much advise, I can't emphasize it enough that people get guidance before right. putting someone else on their assets. There's a lot of downfalls. You're gonna 
uh, subject your asset to your children's creditors or whoever you're naming as joint owner. You're gonna do all these, I could go on and on, but I'll spare you. Um, but basically you don't wanna jump to that step. It's very easy to put a joint owner on an account or a piece of real estate, it's much harder to get them off. Uh, so you wanna make sure you talk that through and think that through. Um, Another way is, you know, beneficiary designations. Like I said, certain assets can be beneficiary designated, like life insurance, retirement. And basically what happens there is the person designated as the beneficiary will send a claim form and get the life insurance check or get access to that IRA or whatever uh, that may be. Um, there's also the ability with certain accounts to do a payable on death or transfer on death, that's POD or TOD, it's often referred to as um, designation. Now, unlike joint ownership, when it comes to payable on death, transfer on death, you can name multiple people to get that asset at your death. It is revocable. You can say who gets what percentage, right? right? And um, and you're not subjecting that asset to the creditors of your beneficiaries while you're alive. Um, another way is through gifting. This is another thing. Please don't run out and give away all your assets, right? Um, you need to have a discussion with an attorney or a CPA with regard to whether gifting is appropriate. Yes. Right, exactly. Because um, definitely, you know, um, I've seen people create a huge capital gains tax issue for their family because they were just trying to avoid probate because you get a full step up in basis as of the date of death if you inherit property um, and not if you give it away. So just anytime someone's thinking about giving away or receiving an appreciated asset, I just tell them, wait a sec, talk to a CPA, talk to an attorney, talk to someone first. Um, Aside from all those things, another way is to create a revocable living trust, which I'm sure you've heard of. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So unlike the testamentary trust that I mentioned earlier, a revocable living trust is an entity in and of itself. So when we create it, it is a separate entity. Um, now it doesn't get a separate EIN, employer identification number, until you've passed away. It uses your same social security number. You still have the same access to the accounts and the money and everything like that. But basically, you create this trust. And my definition of probate assets, assets titled in your name alone. Well, now you're going to move assets from your name alone into the name of your revocable living trust. Mm -hmm. So that is what gets it outside of the realm of probate. Um, so it's not just enough to create the trust. You have to properly fund it or move assets over. Does that- Title, absolutely. And I'm gonna give an explanation to our listeners. A lot of you perhaps have seen on, on real estate title, it may not have the individual residence or the owner's name on there. It might have the name of the trust because the asset is allocated in the trust and therefore the paperwork, the title, it reflects the name of the owner, which would technically be the trust. 
even though the individual owns the trust. So it's a, it's a, it's an, it's a great opportunity for a lot of um, multiple, you know, a lot of clients love using it. And um, it's, it's a great opportunity for you to have the conversation, look at asset protection, look at um, avoiding a lot of these things from happening with all of these different options that are available to you. Right. And yes, and like you said, look at it, right? Because whether a revocable living trust makes sense for someone, it really comes down to an analysis of a lot of different things, you know, right. where they live, whether they have multiple pieces of real estate in multiple jurisdictions, because avoiding multiple probates is even better than avoiding one probate, right? Um, and certain probate proceedings, like in Maryland, probate is pretty straightforward. Right. Uh, I'm twice as likely to recommend a revocable living trust-based plan to my Virginia clients than I am to my Maryland clients. So there's a lot of factors to consider. And I just, yeah, so I just, I've seen before, you know, people that will say everybody needs a trust, right? I don't say that. I, I don't even know who the listeners are today, right? I would need to have that conversation and help them decide kind of what makes sense to them, what's important to them, because that's really what needs to guide this, in my opinion. Exactly, where their residency is and where they're located at all, because every state has different rules, regulations, and probate laws, absolutely. Um, so can you tell our audience a little bit um, about the estate planning process and what they should expect if they have not began any of these processes yet? Absolutely. So I know that this is kind of why a lot of people attend my seminars. And I can tell that because when I start the seminar off, people start raising their hands or now when we're doing it remotely, they start typing in the Q&A, how much can I expect to pay or, or how do I find an attorney, you know, from the second I open my mouth. So um, uh, for most people, you know, the estate planning process starts with looking for an attorney, right? Um, I, I don't know anyone, where should I go to figure that out? I mean, I happen to know a great attorney here locally, but where can you find one, right? So a few things to consider. Now, I know that I personally do go online to look at, you know, a good places to go to get my nails done or get my hair done or whatever. I don't stop there though, right? I read the reviews, I read things beyond. And so um, I think if you're looking online for, an attorney to help you with this, right. you know, keep in mind that the website design company doesn't look at our resume. They don't see how many estate plans we've done. They just care if we've paid their bill, right? So you can look online, but maybe that might not be the, the end answer. Um, in my opinion, the very best way would be to talk to people, right? Talk to local people, maybe colleagues, friends, family members that are local, see who they used, see what the process looked like for them. Right. Um, so, I mean, I think that that's the best way really to find any anyone. I mean, my mechanic is the one that my uh, colleague uses and has used for years. And, and that was enough of a referral for me, right? If they're good enough for her, they're good enough for me. So, um, and then there is, there are some attorney review websites. One is called AVO, A-V-V-O, that's B as in Victor. And um, I don't know if you've heard of it. A lot of people haven't. 
Um, but there are, you know, that's an opportunity that clients have to go on, review their attorney and kind of say what they thought about the process. Now, so far in my practice, I haven't, as far as I know, had a client that wasn't satisfied with my services. But I will tell you, if I did, I wouldn't tell them about AVO. I wouldn't say, hey, please write your review, right? So unless someone happens to know about it, you know, they're, the attorney's probably the one that told them to write them a review. So just also take that with a grain of salt, right? Um, an overwhelming amount of reviews in comparison to the other social media platforms, even though it's an excellent resource that you bring up. But I do want to interject mm -hmm. something important for people to sure. think about this in, in, a, in, a, in an analogical way, as you said. If you have a Maserati, right, you're not going to take it to a general mechanic. Hopefully, you're not going to. Or if you have a German car or specialized vehicle, right, you always try to take it to the person that is specialized in dealing with that type of car so that they can perform the best service for you and with the least amount of pain, figure out what's wrong with the car and help you get it resolved. And because that's all they deal with is that type of car. It's the same thing with law. And I would always encourage individuals, if you're going to someone who does divorce and who does immigration and who does probate and who does a little bit of everything, they're not going to be as specialized as someone who generally specializes in probate and wills and estates and trusts and so forth. So ask a few questions, see, you know, um, ask around and, and, and get the person that would best fit your needs for whatever type of legal law advice you're looking for. I always recommend to go to the most expert expert in that niche that you're looking for to get the person with the most relevant up-to-date information because tax laws change, you know, state, city, county laws change. And unless they're attending those law reviews, unless they're up to speed and engaging, you know, everyone is just because they're an attorney does not make them qualified in everything under the law. So that's just um, my little spiel <laughs> about my hiring yeah, no, it's, professional because it makes a difference. <clears throat> I agree. It's so funny you mentioned that because usually when I do seminars, I do say, you know, don't go to a slash attorney. So a slash attorney, like someone who does DUI slash real estate slash family law slash uh, civil litigation slash estate planning, right? If you come to me with a DUI, you're going straight to jail. Like, don't even bother. So why would you go to one of those attorneys for what I do? And for some reason, I don't know what the reason is. For some reason, I see this area Everybody where, you know, a lot of people. Right. They say they do. A lot of people are. Right. Yeah, right, right, right. Oh, my cousin who does criminal law in New Jersey wrote me a Maryland will. What? They're not even licensed here. And again, like you said, everybody does it. And I don't understand that outlook at all. So, yeah, good point. So, <laughs> ask the right questions. Make sure you're going to someone who's up to speed because rules, laws, regulations all do change. Consult with your CPA. There's so much content you can watch on YouTube and online. And we really wanted to bring this session forward for you to really bring this incredibly important topic to mind um, as 
things happen unforeseeably and you want to have the right individuals um, be pre-assigned and, and really delegate your wishes the way that you want them to be handled. Um, that is my wish for you. And I know, Lindsay, you have been an incredible resource for us. Again, you are licensed in Virginia, Maryland, and DC. In our show notes, we're going to have a ton of information that leads back to you. Um, and I know you speak tremendously about this topic and um, we really appreciate your time. Which Is there anything else that you would like to close our session out with? Um, no, I mean, you know, we, we obviously didn't want to overwhelm people. It's really easy in this area to, uh, to give too much information and scare people away. But um, I think that our website, which I'm sure you'll put up as well, does a good job of like, we have FAQs and questionnaires and, and what to do when a loved one dies, like just a lot of stuff like that. And I totally welcome people to just look at it and just kind of see what kind of questions should I ask the person I go to, things like that. I think it's a good resource. For and I know you and I worked really hard at creating, um, containing the topics we were going to talk about in this session, because we absolutely have more to talk about than we could fit into one session. So I would absolutely invite you and love to have you back. I know you're, again, it's taken us months to be able to put this together. And I appreciate you making time for us today. And I look forward to having you back for us to continue the dialogue and the conversation to our listeners. Please write in, email us, um, and let us know if you have additional questions and topics that you would like for us to enhance and talk further about on our next episodes and as we invite Lindsay back for additional topics. Thank you so much, Lindsay, for your wonderful uh, time today. It's been quite informative. Thank you for having me, Anne. Thank you so much, everyone. Tune in for our next show. We look forward to greeting you back here on Downsizing Your Home and Life Radio. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining Ann Nori, the Downsizing Coach, and tuning into Downsizing Your Home and Life Radio Show. It would mean the world to us if you subscribe to our show so that you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. Please share our show with friends who may also be considering the downsizing journey and leave us a rating and review so that we know how well we're doing. For more resources, visit thedownsizingcoach.com. Wishing you great success in planning your downsizing journey and taking the steps to living your best life. We look forward to greeting you during our next show.